Philippians 3, verses 1 through 11. Let's give our attention to God's Word. It says, Finally, my brothers, rejoice in the Lord. To write the same things to you is no trouble to me and is safe for you. Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Though I myself have reason for confidence in the flesh also. If anyone else thinks he has reason for confidence in the flesh, I have more. Circumcised on the eighth day of the people of Israel, of the tribe of Benjamin, a Hebrew of Hebrews, as to the law, a Pharisee, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. But whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Christ Jesus my Lord. For His sake I have suffered the loss of all things and count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in Him, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith, that I may know Him in the power of His resurrection and may share His sufferings, becoming like Him in His death, that by any means possible I may attain the resurrection from the dead. Grass withers, flowers fade away, but the Word of God stands forever. So let me pray for us and we'll continue to look at it. Heavenly Father, we uh, stop for a moment and bow before You to ask that You would be with us. God, we praise You that You are a God that does not hide Uh, In fact, quite the opposite. You reveal Yourself. You want to be known. And so You give us Your Word. So Father, we pray that that You would be here with Your Holy Spirit to illuminate this Word to us so that we might understand it. We need to hear from You. And we ask this in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, I'm thinking that this sermon tonight... Uh, is going to particularly hit home for a number of you. And the reason I say that is because at its heart, I think that uh, this passage, yeah, I should say that this passage at its heart uh, is really, um, it really tracks with probably one of the main reasons that you're at college. For most of you, at least a big portion of you, uh, why you're at college, just why you're here is really to build a resume. It's at least a big part of it. You want to build a good resume. You want to get a good job when you graduate. And to do that, you have to do certain things. you got to make certain grades. you got to go through certain classes. you you got to build up a resume. And it's all going to culminate in this experience of going to someone, going to an employer, and uh, you've crafted your resume. You've put down all the good things about you, all your good characteristics, all your uh, awards and achievements. You've painted yourself in the best possible light, and you're basically going to hand it to this person or this institution, and you're essentially saying, am I good enough? This is me. Do I make the cut? Will you accept me? And that can, be a, that can be a scary thing because nobody likes to be rejected. Nobody wants to be told that they're not good enough. 
And even if it's not in the, in the, uh, you know, the arena of your occupation, job, we're really doing that in all of life, right? Or we're, really, we're really putting forward our resume, so to speak, at least metaphorically, all the time. Maybe with other people, with, uh, with friend groups, with social organizations, with your parents. We're always trying to put sort of our, our best self forward and see if people will accept us. Here's my resume, what do you think? And that really is exactly what Paul's talking about in this passage. You know, if you've been with us this semester, we're studying through this letter, uh, Philippians, that Paul's written to this this church that he planted, and it's a letter that's filled with joy. Every week we've seen that Paul is writing to these folks, even though he's sitting in prison, he writes to these Christians and he tells them all about the joy that he has in Christ and the joy that uh, can be and is theirs. And so we've said our theme is real joy in the midst of real life. And here, if you notice, Paul calls these believers and and really calls us uh, in the first verse to rejoice in the Lord. And he ultimately, kind of the balance of this passage as we unpack it, you're going to see that he says we can rejoice in the Lord because God accepts people by grace. In other words, the good news is that you don't have to work to build up a resume that's good enough to take to God and then hope that He accepts you. Rather, He gives you a perfect resume for free. That's what we're going to say tonight. Start to finish, that's it. We see joy and grace. And we're going to look at that in three ways. Uh, First, we're just going to have sort of an introduction, basically just kind of what's going on here in this passage. And then secondly, we're going to look at Paul's first resume that he has in his life. And then thirdly, we'll end with Paul's second resume. Uh, And let me just say here before we dig in, uh, let me say sort of a public thanks to a couple of pastors uh, whose sermons helped me very much in my preparation. Pastor, uh, a guy named Ray Cortez and a guy named Ricky Jones. Uh, Yeah, their sermons were very helpful to me on this, and uh, so I've borrowed some of their thoughts and want to give them credit. All right, so let's dig in here and look at this passage. And first, we're just going to sort of do sort of an intro. What's going on here in this passage? Because it's a little different from all the rest. Um, You know, if you notice, Paul starts out like we, like we're kind of accustomed to, right? Rejoice in the Lord and seems to be sort of the joyful. And then he shifts really quickly and he's like, look out for the dogs and the evildoers. and, And it sort of takes a weird turn. So what's that all about? What does he say? Look out for the dogs. Look out for the evildoers. Look out for those who mutilate the flesh. For we are the circumcision who worship by the Spirit of God and glory in Christ Jesus and put no confidence in the flesh. Well, what I want you to see is that Paul is calling us, telling us about and calling us to uh, rejoice in the Lord. And it's actually, he, he sort of gives it as a warning that there's something that can rob our joy in the Lord from us. So what is it? What's going on here? What? All right, so we can tell from Paul's other letters, and we see it reflected here, that it seems like often what happened, Paul would plan a church, and then it doesn't seem like it would take very long, and then the, these other folks would kind of would show up. It almost seems like they followed Paul around. We call them Judaizers. Right? They seem to be uh, Jewish people that would show up at these churches that Paul's planted, uh, And think about who you've got. You've got especially a lot of um, Gentiles, non-Jews, 
that have become Christians. And so these folks kind of show up at the church and they say their, their basic message seems to be something like, look, Jesus is a, we're pro-Jesus. Jesus is a great way to start you know, the whole salvation thing, to be reconciled with God. But you also need now to be a good Jew, right? To live out, the, uh, the, to live out God's law. So in other words, you need to, uh, yes, you need to have faith in Jesus, but you also now need to be circumcised. You need to follow the dietary laws of the Old Testament and that sort of stuff. And it basically boils down to uh, that salvation is Jesus plus something that you do also. Some sort of work of your own that you add to it. And that's how God accepts people. And whenever this would start to creep in or, or start to march into a church, Paul... Paul goes crazy when people start teaching this and people start believing this, right? Go home and read Galatians. To the Galatians, he basically says, when they come in, they start talking about, oh, well, now you need to be circumcised. You know, essentially follow the, uh, it's Jesus plus your works. He says, you know, those circumcision people, you know, I wish that they would go the whole way and cut the whole thing off. Paul says that. It's in the Bible. He's not playing around. And the reason is because it's not the gospel anymore. You can't take the gospel and tweak it a little bit and say it's kind of gospel or mostly gospel. He says you've ruined the whole thing. And he will not stand for it. And so you can tell from the words that he chooses here, dogs, evildoers, those were names that the uh, sort of the Judaizers would use of the outsiders. And Paul uses it of them. And he sums it up. He sums up what he sort of his message by saying that true Christians are those that put no confidence in their flesh. In other words, in their own works, what they do. That is that, yeah, that true Christians don't rely on anything in and of themselves, but they wholly rest in Jesus. Nothing that they do can commend themselves to God. Can't put anything on the resume and go to God and say, look, here we go. So that's the situation. I just want to give you one quick application before we move on. I want you to see that Paul's warning is real. And, and he gives it for a very good reason. That, that this is the tendency of our hearts. Paul says, look, you have to, if you're a believer, you have to watch out for this kind of thinking. You have to be aware of this and be vigilant against it. You have to fight for your joy in the gospel. Because the sort of the system of the world, even your own heart, is going to be prone, it's always going to be prone to want to add something to it. Your heart's always going to want to think, yes, it's Jesus and nothing else, but also this good work. And so you and I, you have to fight every day to remind yourself of the good news of the gospel. Fight for your joy in the gospel. And we're going to unpack exactly what that good news is throughout the rest of the sermon. But yeah, you have to be on the lookout for it and you have to fight against it. All right, so that's sort of our situation. So now we're going to really dig in and look at Paul's first resume and then we'll look at his second resume, so to speak. Second point, Paul's first resume. 
Where do we see it? Verses 4 to 6. So after he gives this warning, he basically says, look, let me tell you why I, I, I can talk to you about this. And he sort of gives us his resume. Nobody can speak about this as well as I can. Um, because look, he basically says, if anybody should be proud of who they were, it was me. I had it all, I thought, right? In this whole thing, Paul's speaking uh, from his previous perspective. So keep that in mind. If anybody had any reason to think they could go to God and say, huh, how about this, right? It was me. And then he gives his list. Circumcised, we're going to run through it real quick. Circumcised on the eighth day, right? Basically, just like God's law in Leviticus, whatever, 12.3 required. That a male child be circumcised on the eighth day. He's of the people of Israel. He's a purebred member of God's people. Uh, Third, he's of the tribe of Benjamin. Not just any old Israelite, which is, you know, great. He's of sort of a special tribe. Commentators disagree about why it's, you know, he picks it out. Um, Benjamin was one of two tribes that stuck with uh, David, sort of the true, you know, uh, true kingdom in the split. It's where Jerusalem was. It's where the first king of Israel came from. Who was? Saul. Exactly. Right? You might see why this Saul, Paul, who used to be Saul, would uh, align himself with that. Uh, He's a Hebrew of Hebrews. It's basically saying, look, my family, we were real deal Israelites. We grew up speaking Hebrew, Aramaic, in our house. We We weren't Hellenized. We didn't fall into the whole, like, worldly Roman Greek thing. We were the real deal. Uh, as, as far as the law goes, I was a Pharisee. It's the strictest sect of Judaism. Um, basically, he took the law really serious. He studied it. He memorized it. He knew his, you know, what we call the Old Testament, backwards and forwards. Uh, as to zeal, a persecutor of the church. He's saying, look, I was so passionate about this. And remember, this is, he thought he's defending God's honor, Right? I was so passionate to the point of persecuting anybody that was against it, i.e. the church, Christians. Uh, Lastly, he says, as to righteousness under the law, blameless. Now, I don't think even he means sinlessly perfect, but basically in in his understanding, right, the way that they would sort of reduce the law, he was keeping it. And, And look, make no mistake, he really was at least externally keeping it. In other words, He worked really hard at being good. So yeah, Paul, you know, you could basically sum it up by, again, thinking wrongly, wrong perspective. I was doing everything right. Everything right. I had a great pedigree. I had great theology, great passion. I had great works. Paul was proud of his resume. But look how he talks about his resume now. Right to the present, at least then, uh, with the Philippians, verses 6 through 8. He says, now he counts all that stuff as loss. And then later he says rubbish, which we'll talk about in a minute. So what happened? What caused Paul to go from, from you know, I'm, look, I got to figure it out, to I count all that stuff as loss. And what happened was that Paul met Jesus. Paul met Jesus, and you can read about it. It seems to be clear from the text that that's what's in his mind. Because he goes from, he says, I counted it as a loss. The verb even sort of indicates that. Um, You can read about it in Acts 9, uh, Acts 22 and 26. And so I want to take just a second to sort of zero in on that and look at when Paul was converted. Because I think it's important. 
So in Acts 9, what's going on? Paul is at the height of his Phariseeism. He is heading to Damascus to go hunt down uh, Christians, hunt down Jewish people that had converted to Christianity to arrest them and haul them back to trial in Jerusalem. So he's on a mission. And then all of a sudden, uh, oh yeah, the text says that he was still breathing threats and murder against the disciples of the Lord. So there's Paul. He's on a mission to do that. And all of a sudden, Jesus shows up in this blinding, glorious light with this overwhelming presence. And he shows up and he says, Saul, Saul, why are you persecuting me? And Paul says, who are you, Lord? And Jesus says, I am Jesus whom you are persecuting. And it's, look, it, it's right then that it all came crashing down for Paul. But when God asks a question in the Bible, it's not rhetorical. He, he does it for a reason. He wants that person to actually think through the answer. Why was Paul persecuting Jesus? And I think if Paul could, you know, as he began to process that, the, the, the answer is because Jesus can't be real. He can't, I mean, he was a real person, Paul knew that, but he can't really be the son of God. He believed that theologically because, uh, you know, from what he knew of the Old Testament, God, uh, anybody that's hung on the tree is cursed of God, so God can't be cursed. It was proof. And anyway, his whole system, right, the, his whole understanding of, of God's economy was essentially, though maybe not explicitly, was fundamentally him working his way to God, being good enough and following the law. And if, if Jesus is right, if he's real, then everything that Paul is about is worthless. Because they are opposed to one another. And all of a sudden in that moment, Paul sees he's real. And he's very right. And so Paul realizes right then, I mean, he's faced with the, just the sheer holiness of God, right? Like Isaiah was. And he just comes undone. And he's forced to see that everything about me, all the stuff that I love about myself, it is worthless. It's worthless. And now we can take a little bit closer look at what he, how he talks about it. Uh, he says that, he says, now I, can, you know, I look back at my resume, and not only is it not gain, you know, it's not in the, in the plus column. He says, it's actually loss. So it doesn't just go to neutral. Like, well, that wasn't helping me. It wasn't helping him. But he says it was actually hurting him. He says it was a loss. And then in verse 8, he says he considers it rubbish. And you might have heard this before, but look, the Greek word, our translation just doesn't do it justice. Right? This is a very polite way of saying this. It's a pretty crass word. Um, it's, it's the idea of food that has been thrown out. Either thrown out of your body, right? You, you get how that, what that means. Um, or the idea of some sort of like rotting, gross food that's thrown out in the, in the trash heap. And so, I mean, to put it not, yes, crassly, but just accurately, Paul... I mean, no kidding, like, you know, this is not a stretch. Paul says all this, that stuff that I used to think was really special about me, it, it is crap. And, and that, that might even be a little bit of a polite translation, but I don't think I'm brave enough to say anything more than that. 
So why does he say that? Why isn't it just like, now I realize it's not gain? He says, no, 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 it's not gain. It's, it's worthless, right? I mean, what, what, I don't know about you, but I flush every time, right? I, I don't want it. It's repulsive, right? You do too. It's because what he, what he realized is that stuff, it's not just neutral. That stuff, the very stuff that I thought was helping me, was exactly the stuff that was killing me. The stuff that I thought I was going to God and saying, look, I, I have this. That I thought was helping me was the very thing that was hurting my relationship, that was barring my relationship with God. Because it was blocking his, his understanding that, that he really needs Jesus. Yeah, I've used this illustration before, but it's just so perfect, if I do say so. Uh, I heard this story on uh, This American Life uh, about a girl who uh, was at work, and she notices this guy at her workplace. She's single, and she notices this guy, and you know, she thinks he's cute or whatever, and so she wants to kind of get to know him, and so she meets him. And she wants to you know, kind of continue to develop this, and so she figures out and talking with him when his, uh, what shifts he works. And so whenever it's a shift, she you know, is coming to a day and she knows, all right, our shifts are going to overlap. I'm going to see him at work. She took, you know, she was very careful to make sure that she wore her favorite pair of jeans because she thought she looked awesome in those jeans. And so she wanted, obviously, to, you know, appear as attractive as possible to this guy. And so uh, the relationship actually develops and they uh, start to date and then they eventually get engaged. And... Uh, so the story goes that at some point, I think they're engaged at this time, he's over at her apartment hanging out, and she's cleaning out her closet and her, uh, yeah, basically cleaning out her closet and, and drawers, uh, you know, giving things to Goodwill. I'm keep, you know, so I got the Goodwill pile and I got the keep pile. And he's kind of helping, you know. And he takes those jeans, which, by the way, were like, according to her descri- their description, like 1980s, like acid wash had the weird flap that came up over your belly, if you can even picture this. I know it's way before your time, but anyway. So he picks those up, and he puts them on the Goodwill pile, and she's like, oh, nope, wrong pile. And he's like, seriously? You sure? And she's like, what, what do you mean? Do you, do you, these are my favorite. Do you not like these? And, he's, and he says, like, these are horrific. <laughs> I mean, these are awful. And so she... She all of a sudden has this realization that the very thing that she thought was commending herself to this guy, like, the, like her number one, you know, best feature, right? I'm wearing my good looking jeans. It was the one thing that he had to overcome to have a relationship with her. You get the picture, right? She thought it was working for her and it was actually working against her. And that's exactly what Paul is warning us about our own righteousness. Now let that sink in for a second. That's what Paul's warning us about our righteousness. For Paul, he thought his goodness, doing good things, being good, he thought it was earning him favor with God and it was actually exactly the thing that was keeping him from God. It's like Paul was taking human waste and smearing it on himself and like, you know, now do I look good? No, it's repulsive. All right, so what do we do with this? How do we apply it? Goodness, a ton. But look, it, 
handful of things. It means at least this, that yes, we need to repent of our sinful deeds. We, you and I need to repent of the wrong, bad things we do. That's true. But it, it means we also need to repent of the good things that we do. In other words, the very best prayer that you have ever offered, the most sincere moment you've ever had in your life, the most righteous deed, act, thought, whatever that you have ever done, with the the most purest motive that you can muster, in and of itself is absolutely damnable. In and of itself. Your best deeds can't save you. And you have to be aware that even as professing Christians, our, one of our biggest obstacles to truly knowing Jesus can very well be the good things that we do. Because look, here's why. It's so easy. Our hearts are so prone to, to use some sort of external righteousness as a means to get God to like us. It's so easy to take those things, um, even though you would never actually say this or think this, right? Like, all right, I'm doing this so God will like me. It's so easy to operate like that and basically go to God and think, the real reason that God likes me is because I read my Bible every day. Or I don't sleep around. Or I go to church every week. Or I give my money away or I'm nice to, I'm nice to people. And, and look, those things are good things. But the problem is that they can so easily become our, our righteousness. They can become our resume. And when they become your resume, then you, you don't even really need Jesus because you're, you're a pretty good boy or girl. It's the classic older brother thinking. Right? The older brother in you know, Luke 16, the parable of the prodigal son, the older brother hates his dad just as much as the younger son. He just found a different way to go about it. And what's his way of going about life to make it work for him? It's obedience. I'll do the good son thing, but it's just as gross. And it's actually more dangerous. And look, at Baylor, of all places, right? Like I, I hope that you see that in some sense, this is, this is kind of the air that we breathe This is the water we swim in. Of all places, you have to to hear that this is a huge deal. And if you just thought, yes, right, I'm glad that those people are here and they're going to hear this, guess what? (laughs) It's you. Okay? Because think about if we put Paul's resume in our terms now, it might sound something like this. I was born into a Christian house. My dad was an elder. We were at church every time the doors opened. I was baptized, catechized. I was the leader of the youth group. I read my Bible. Now I'm reformed, which means I know I'm right. (laughs) And just hang on, hear me out. I was, uh, and I was homeschooled. So, you know, I'm really right. Or, or I went to public school. So, you know, that we really understand what missional living missionally is all about. So, you know, we're right. Right. So all the homeschoolers can chill out. Right? None of those things are necessarily wrong, but here's the question. Why are you doing them? Why are you doing them? Because if it's to build a resume, 
to go to God and say, look, see, I'm not that bad. Or to show God, I wasn't that bad of a bet. I appreciate the salvation. See, I'm coming through for you. If that's the case, then, then you have to see. Paul's saying, look, it is robbing you of your joy. And Paul's saying, I want you to see it for the crap that it really is. It is killing you. How do you know if you might be doing this? Um, just, gosh, some quick diagnostics. Um, number one, you'll be angry with people. Uh, you'll be mad at people because they aren't keeping the rules like you are, and it just it frustrates you. Secondly, uh, you very well might be competitive slash angry at people because they are keeping the rules, and that makes you mad too. It's a threat to you. Uh, another one, third, you can't, you can't identify with sinners. Like, you just don't get them. Uh, last one, uh, you very well might have a lot of extra rules in your life that are not necessarily biblical that sort of masquerade as Christian discipline. I'm not saying Christian discipline's bad, but you might have a lot of extra rules in your life and you use those rules uh, maybe most often to sort of judge other people. Yeah, what kind of school you go to, exactly what you do on a Sunday, rules about culture like TVs and movies, you know, who knows what. Um, those sorts of things. All right, so you get the idea. That's Paul's old resume. And very quickly, man, it goes fast. Uh, Paul's second resume. All right, so we've seen uh, that his, basically his first resume, right, he says, like, I, tear that thing up. It's worthless. Um, but now he goes on to tell us about his second resume, the one he has now. Uh, verse 9, and be found in him, in Jesus, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God that depends on faith. Um, goodness, where do we begin? Um, look, Paul, Paul basically says the, the good news is that even though my old resume is absolutely worthless, and now I see because of what, you know, I, I know Jesus, I can tear that one up because the great news, the good news is that Jesus gives me his. Jesus gives me his resume for free. And how does he do He does it because he identifies with his people. This is too good. I have to tell you this. this is, I think this was also going on on the road to Damascus, right? When, when he says, uh, when Jesus says, why are you persecuting me? Can't you, I mean, I think Paul had to think through this somewhat like this. Persecute you. How in the world could I persecute you? I was persecuting people that believe in you. And I think Paul starts to connect the dots. Right? Because he wasn't persecuting Jesus. Because why? Jesus was dead, he thought. But what did Jesus say? Why are you persecuting me? And what he gets in that moment is that Jesus so identifies himself with his people. He so wraps up his identity with his people that that's that's who he is. It's what he came to do. That's how God could hang on a cross and be cursed and still be God. Because he was doing it in his people's place. Right? Most people outside of Christianity think that what Christianity is, 
um, is it's, it's some sort of self-improvement deal, right? You realize you're a sinner, so come inside here and now come here and you can get serious about uh, doing right and getting better. And that's not what it is. That's a good plan. It's really not even a good plan. It's just a plan. But Christianity is about good news. It says if you've realized you're a sinner and that your, your resume is worthless, here's the good news. Jesus gives you his for free. 2 Corinthians 5.21 says, For our sake he made him, God made Jesus, he made him to be sin who knew no sin, so that in him we might become the righteousness of God. The good news is that he gives you his righteousness. I heard a pastor say that uh, with the uh, sort of new members class, a lot of times he likes to ask, um, why does God accept you? If you're a believer, why does God accept you? And he says, you know, most folks say something like, well, because Jesus died for my sins. And he said, you know, other answers not as good. But usually it's Jesus died for my sins. And he says, usually I'll sort of jokingly say, well, that's true. He did. What was he doing the first 30 to 33 years of his life? What was that all about? Why didn't he just get it over with? And the point is that Jesus did die for your sins, but he also lived for you. What Jesus was doing in the first 30, 33 years of his life was living a perfect life before God, obeying the law perfectly, loving God with all his heart, soul, mind, and strength, and his neighbor uh, as himself. And he was doing it so he could take that resume and earn it and then give it to you. Give it to me. And look, here's what I want you to see, that if that's true about you, then that's how God feels about you. If you're like me, you tend to think that the way God feels about you, it's based on sort of a quick evaluation of the week you've had. And if you've, you know, you kind of did some bad stuff, but, you know, you've done some good stuff, you kind of read your Bible and you didn't, you know, then God's kind of like, ah, it's all right. But if you've, uh, you've done something really great, like, man, you told somebody about Jesus or done something really big, then God's really excited to see you. And if you've blown it, you know, in some kind of vivid ways, God is just really frustrated and like, really? Can't figure it out better than that? That's the way I tend to think. And look, if you're in Christ, if you are found in Him, the way that God thinks about you, the way He considers you, is exactly the same the way He feels about Jesus. That's how He feels about you. You have His righteousness. You get credit for everything He could do. Not just some sort of vague, general, like, goodness that God sort of sprinkles on you. You get credit for the exact righteousness of Jesus. And that's how He feels about you. You, you might have heard me say this before. But um, a friend of mine was sitting in a coffee shop a long time ago in Oxford. And an older gentleman walked up to him and he said, he basically asked him, son, do you, know, do you know Jesus Christ? And he says, I, I do. And he said, then son... Do you know that, that God walks around heaven with a picture of you in his wallet? And he just jumps at the chance to show people. Because he loves you. He's proud of you. And I look, may, maybe that's a little corny, but, but the essence of that is awesome. That's how God feels about you. He loves you. He's proud of you. He wants to show you off. How do you get it? We're going to end with this thought in one minute. If that sounds good to you, how do you get that resume? It, 
You get it by faith. And now that's a churchy word if there, if there ever was one. So what does it mean? Well, it means believing. It means trusting. I'm like, okay, we're getting closer. I heard a, a, a translator, a guy that was living in this uh, tribe of people trying to translate, learn their language to translate the Bible. And he was struggling with how to translate the word faith. And it, it finally hit him somehow. He translated it as leaning your whole weight upon something. That's what faith is. To take your whole life and rest it onto Jesus. That's what it is. To lean your identity on him. To realize that you can't cover yourself. You can't make a good enough resume. And so it means to quit covering and trust that Jesus will cover you. As you might have heard it said, all you need is need and all you need is nothing. You get to just come and and take it if you want it. So that's an invitation to you tonight. Let me pray for us. Father, we have, uh, as we do every week, but we have, we have tread in waters that are, that are so deep. And I'm so inadequate to talk about them. But Father, by your Holy Spirit, would you impress them on our hearts so that we might all be changed. And we ask it in your name. Amen.